Making the leap from renter to owner can be super daunting. Not counting the mounds of paperwork, the incredible amount of money and time you are investing, and the hours and hours of waiting, waiting to find the ideal house, in the ideal location, with the ideal features, waiting to hear about an offer, waiting for closing, waiting for an understandable definition of what escrow is. The change in personality is somewhat distressing. Not that everyone has this individual sea change, but for many, this is one of the final steps of entering adulthood. I spent a good chunk of my life getting into trouble and living as if there was no goal, no future, just the here and the now. My living spaces reflected this attitude. In apartments, neighbors hated me because of loud music pumping through the thin walls, or cigarette butts and empty bottles invariably finding their way in front of their doors. In houses, the neighbors saw uncut grass and overflowing trash cans. They saw broken furniture in the yard, and sometimes myself, broken and passed out as well. For me, my roommates, the only motivation was the next punk or hardcore show, the next bar. In the words of Iris Dement and John Prine, when payday comes, I was a howling at the moon. There was no, what my parents called, pride of ownership. Partly because I just didn't give a shit, but mostly because I owed nothing. Then, a change comes. A wake-up call. Eventually, I sobered up enough to go back to school, and thankfully, it stuck. I got a couple of degrees and began to see myself as a productive member of society. When my wife and I came to the South, we brought with us visions of adulthood. Five, ten, twenty-year plans. And that, of course, needed to begin with a foundation. At our jobs, we had students and colleagues referring to us as professors and doctors, sirs and ma'ams, so that aspect screamed responsibility. But we felt home base would deepen our productive member of society status. We got on the housing market. We toured and put in offers. We got our hopes up, then had them dashed. Then, after a brief 20-minute tour, two months of waiting and studying the online images of the house, and a commitment to spending more money than we'd ever hoped to see over the next 30 years, we got the keys. We took on an insane amount of responsibility for something that we had spent 20 minutes in. In the span of a decade, I went from essentially a punk rock fuck-up to a guy who stresses about his yard getting too long. Today, I have daily lists of improvements that I need to make. Door frames to paint, attic junk to clean out, pool chemicals to buy, I'm constantly worried about and working on a house that I never knew existed two months before I owned it. There's a podcast out there called Scared to Death. Dan and Lindsay cover all sorts of scary shit, both famous and from listeners, but they also have some pretty smart commentary on the nature of being scared as well. There was an episode where Lindsay said something that stuck with me. I don't remember exactly what she was saying, but it was about how we basically buy houses without testing them out first, like we do with cars. I can't tell you how much I agree with that. We usually try everything out before we buy. We watch previews and read smart-ass reviews of films before we buy tickets. We go on campus tours and speak with other students before committing to a particular college. We go on dates and get to know one another before we get married. Well, most of us. Often, we live together before marriage as well. We get a good understanding of idiosyncrasies and secrets before committing. We visit countries before we decide that we will move to them. Why, then, don't we do that with houses? Why is there no test drive period with a house? 
Why can't we live in a house for a week or a month to see if we can get to know its secrets? Besides the logistical nightmare this might create, I think it's because every house has secrets. Every house has something to hide. Of course, there's an argument about new construction, like paranormal activity or poltergeist, but even there, the Cuesta Verde estates were built on graves. Maybe the house itself isn't malicious, but the builders behind it were. Homes, like people, have baggage. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 2 Because of his love of horror, and a reference to the major step they were taking into adulthood, Denny insisted they name their first home High Hopes, even though it was a thousand miles away from 112 Ocean Avenue. A bad omen, maybe, but that was Denny. Their house sat on a corner lot. The hilly neighborhood, mostly built in the mid-60s, were ranch-style brick affairs that looked as if conjured right from the Sears and Roebuck catalog. They weren't exactly tract homes in the Levittown image, but rather the same general floor plan with different trimmings and additions. The corner lots were the most unique. Whereas the lot-locked properties had front doors and carports facing the street, the homes on the corners were positioned at 45-degree angles, so that they faced the facades diagonally across the stop-signed intersection. Denny and Kate's ranch was on the southeast corner of Muldoon Road and Bradbury Boulevard. The front door, which they'd used only a handful of times in the year they lived there, faced northwest. The carport, and more often used back door, faced northeast. Anything but south, Kate insisted. She was superstitious that way. Following the announcement of a major military program moving into the area, the housing market was suddenly flooded with cash offers and new families. So the fact that the Colemans won the race, and at the price they did, felt almost like fate. A hidden hand, divine or not, had cleared the way. After accepting their teaching positions, the couple had rented a house, sight unseen, and it wasn't two months before they felt claustrophobic in its tiny square footage. Their big labs had no fenced yard with which to roam either. Feeling relatively stable in their jobs, they thought, why pay someone else's mortgage when we can pay our own? Not knowing the first thing about home buying, ownership, mortgage, escrow, or major responsibility, Joan had come up from Florida to help with the process. They secured the first real estate agent that came up in a simple Google search, Connie Smartly. A pleasant, bubbly sort of woman, the agent had high hopes at the top of her list to show the couple. Poring over the Zillow images, the place produced all the stock responses you might hear on a house hunting reality show. Oh, it's so cute. I love those floors. Look at the lilies in the front yard. A big yard for the girls. Looks like it has great light. That could be my sewing room. That could be my man cave. And of course, the biggest selling point. It has a pool. Along with Joan, Denny and Kate, doused with excitement, jumped into the car, tore across town to check the place out. And it just pulled up in front when Connie called to say a cash offer had just come in. Denny and his mother, peering through the windows, noting the emptiness, began talking about what improvements would be done first, where furniture would go, how often he would need to mow the lawn. 
Kate kept quiet, taking in the sprawling lawn and lush flower beds. There were so many lilies, it looked as if there were small patches of snow here and there. The neighbors, a couple, both wearing visors, were working in their own garden, and gave Kate a warm, exaggerated wave. Kate responded in kind, thinking, what a friendly neighborhood. This must be growing up. Connie called a few minutes later, telling Kate that a cash offer had just come in on the house. When Kate relayed the message, the three had stood on the driveway for a time, feeling frustrated and wishing ill will upon those who had the ability to deliver cash up front. Recent graduates from a doctoral program in which they made enough money to eat ramen and put $5 in their gas tanks, the couple would be taking whatever mortgage they got with Denny's mother as co-signer. Over the next two weeks, Connie took them on tours of dozens of houses that either fell way below their expectations or far above their price point. They'd begun discussing the notion of waiting until the fall, maybe closer to Christmas, save some money, find the perfect place. After all, there was no rush, right? Joan was dragging her suitcase out of the bedroom and getting herself ready to make the drive back down to Florida when Connie called again. Kate left the room, talking in a higher-pitched voice than normal. When she returned, her face alight, she said, the offer fell through. Neither Joan nor Denny needed to ask which offer. During their search, their conversations had always returned to that first house in a forlorn way, the one that got away. You're kidding, Joan said. Nope, Kate told her. Connie's on her way to the place now. Piled into Denny's doorless Jeep, the three rushed across town. At one point, Denny said, if another cash offer comes in, I'm going to lose it. Connie's mid-sized Buick SUV was parked in the driveway, a smartly homes decal across the rear window, and the home's carport door stood open. Connie was already inside, probably turning on lights and the air conditioning. They stood in the driveway, taking in the property again. The brick walls of the house were punctuated by blue shutters that framed each of the five windows facing the street. The color of the front door matched them. A long line of neatly trimmed shrubs ran the length of the side that faced Muldoon Street, and two light poles stood sentry on either side of the circular stone-outlined garden bed, an oak tree in the center. Dozens of red and white lilies coiled around the trunk. The yard was large, sprawling around both sides of the house, and Denny knew it was going to take some effort to keep it cut with a push mower, but he didn't care. This must be the place. It had to be. After all the other disappointments, they had felt drawn back to the 60s ranch. The three Colemans went into the laundry room first, a decent-sized room attached to the carport. Joan noted the lack of washer and dryer. You're going to need to buy those. Add another thousand bucks to the list. The woman had a knack for taking a happy moment and injecting it with hard realities. Like, if the couple were to mention they'd been thinking of taking a vacation to Costa Rica, Joan might suggest that Kate would be trafficked out of the country and sold into a harem of a wealthy Iraqi. Always a ray of sunshine. Kate was the first to walk into the house. She had a bundle of sage stashed in the hidden pocket of her sundress. Again, always the superstitious one, she wanted to make sure the vibes of the house were solid even before they made an offer. Denny said, Connie, you in here? Without furniture or art on the walls, his voice bounced and echoed. They heard nothing back. Denny said, She must be down by the pool, turning on the pump or something. The house was screaming for updates, new, modern colors to cover the antique white banisters, chair rails, and cornices. 
the removal of busy floral print wallpaper, replacing the thick, musty curtains that were about as old as Kate and Denny combined. But this was all cosmetic. While very dated, the house was in great shape. Good bones, one might say. The hardwood floors were polished, windows replaced with double pane for energy conservation, and the air conditioning made the transition from the brutal Georgian heat feel heavenly. I guess this can be a self-guided tour for the time being, Joan said, and the trio immediately split up. Joan lingered in the kitchen and dining nook, which the carport opened into, opening cupboard doors and muttering about what needed to go where. The counters were empty, save for a single plastic pot on the windowsill above the sink, a lone lily standing tall in the damp soil. The next rooms were divided by a wall with a pass-through between them. On one side was what was probably intended to be a formal dining room, which Denny had already talked about curtaining off and turning into a home theater. The other side was an awkwardly shaped living room with a fireplace backed up to the rear of the kitchen. The living area also housed a sliding glass door, which led to the screened-in porch and stairs down to the pool area in the backyard. Denny went out that way and slid the door closed behind him. The separated living and formal dining rooms came together again in a tight entryway where the front door stood. This gave way to a long hallway. Kate chose this direction. Already darker than the rest of the house, as the light from the afternoon sun couldn't quite reach, Kate thought some strategically placed mirrors would help brighten the corridor. The first door on the left was the guest bath, which was begging to have its pastel pink tiles traded in for something more contemporary, while the first door on the right opened onto a small bedroom, just big enough for a guest room. It had a large picture window that looked out onto the round garden bed and intersection of Bradbury and Muldoon, yet even with the curtains drawn, the room still had a certain dimness to it. Kate chalked this up to the new windows. Maybe they had some sort of progressive tinting that helped with cooling down the sprawling house. This was Georgia, after all. They must have ways to combat the heat. She flipped the light switch, saw that the ceiling fan and bulb worked, then continued on her tour. The corner bedroom was smaller than the last. This could be our office space, she thought. A library. Put all those damn books they'd needed to buy and read for their degrees up on shelves. This room, too, was darker than it should have been, and colder. Five, six degrees difference than the larger rooms in the front of the house. The windows would really help on their electric bill. Libraries were meant to be darker, anyway, cooler, like tombs for forgotten authors and dead words. Across the hall was the master bedroom. This door was closed. As she reached for the handle, Kate could hear voices from back down the hall. First the mutter of Joan's voice, then Denny responding with, No, she wasn't down there. The master was a lavish space, with enough room for their king-sized bed, a pair of dog cushions that the girls would never use, and even a corner for a chaise lounge or other chair to relax with a book in. There were two doors on opposing sides, and Kate was drawn to the closer one. A decent ensuite was inside. This, too, needed some updates. Kate pictured a clawfoot tub, bath bombs, candles, and a soft cotton robe waiting on a cute accent table nearby. Coming out of the bathroom, Kate found Denny in the center of the room, looking up at the ceiling fan. The blades were detailed with ornate spirals and white flowers. We're going to need to change this out. Priority number one. Kate said, Does that mean you're into this house? He reached up and pulled the chain. 
The fan began to spin. Are you? Asked you first, Kate said. Honestly, I love it, Denny said. He put an arm around her waist and led her over to one of the room's windows. It overlooked the pool. The water rippled with the breeze, and some of the leaves that had fallen from nearby trees were gathering in the deep end. Beyond the far corner of the pool was a wooden shed, painted the same color as the shutters and front door of the house. A half-rusted metal table and chair set was sitting on the adjacent concrete pad, looking hot to the touch. The pool area was cordoned off by a gate and an elevated deck. The wooden slats needed a fresh coat of paint, but both Denny and Kate were already picturing lawn chairs and beach towels spread over those slats. Beyond the porch was the rest of the backyard, a larger, grassy space that ascended back up toward the carport. The gate at the crest of the hill opened out onto Bradbury Avenue. So much space out there. The girls will just die when they get to run around. And that pool? I mean, I'm going to live out there. Kate smiled at the thought of looking out that same window and seeing Denny on a pineapple-shaped float, sunglasses on, fruity cocktail in hand. She thought maybe, just maybe, she could get her opaque Wisconsin skin to actually tan. And the basement, well, it's sort of a basement. Looks like whoever owned this place turned it into a workshop. I think they put some plywood walls up to cover some of the pipes and wires and the slope of the ground beneath the house. There's this old fridge down there. Still works. And there's some stalls, like changing rooms for people in the pool. He sounded giddy, like he was relating his first sexual experience to a virginal best friend. Kind of weird. I think there were some swinger parties down there in the 70s. I think I could have some fun down there. We are not swinging, Dennis. Denny slumped his shoulders with obvious exaggeration and curled his lips into a coy smile. Sorry to disappoint you, but you can barely handle one woman anyway, Kate said, elbowing his ribs. But what about the house itself? It's cool, Denny said, leading her to the other window. A tin shed sat alone in one corner near the gate. But really, this is your space, right? I want you to decorate and organize and make this your own. Our own. Yes, ours. I'm giving my stamp of approval. What say you? Kate's mouth widened into a smile. I love it. Really, the house is perfect. Danny made a little fist-pumping motion, then said, All right, we can't sound too excited. Gotta hold our cards close to the chest until we get the inspections done and all that. Speak for yourself, big boy. You're manic. Talking too fast, she said, letting her voice trail off. He reddened, then stopped. Wait, did you check out the closet? I think it might be a walk-in. Kate waited by the hall while Denny went over and opened the door. He swung it wide, then stood there gripping the handle. His mouth hung open. What? Kate asked. Is it massive? Can I stash every pair of shoes and fat pants I own in there? Without looking at her, Denny said, You need to check this out. Joining him, Kate peered into the closet. It was large, maybe half the size of the guest room, with wire shelving attached to two of the walls. A single bulb with a pull chain hung from the ceiling, and below it, on the fringes of the light's cone, was Connie. Their real estate agent was on her knees, with her back to the couple. Her forehead looked to be pressed against the wall. She was rocking back and forth in a slow, rhythmic pattern. Connie? Kate said first. You okay? The woman kept rocking. Reverting to some proper place in his mind, Denny said, Mrs. Smartly? 
Without realizing it, the couple had to interlace their fingers, and they could feel each other's bodies stiffening. With her free hand, Kate squeezed the bundle of sage in her pocket. The light bulb flickered once, then again. Kate looked up to see the chain, with what had looked like a rabbit's foot attached to the end, swinging in a tight circle, as if it had just been pulled. Denny moved first, taking a step forward. Do you need us to call so... Connie breathed out, her back shuddering as if she had been holding her breath, then looked over her shoulder at the Coleman's. Her eyes were wide, too wide, and even from six feet away, Kate could see that her pupils were nearly eclipsing the irises. The woman blinked over and over, like she was trying to clear sleep away, then turned her head again. They could hear her mutter what sounded like, Amen. Then she was on her feet. Turning around, eyes downcast, Connie was smoothing down the front of her skirt. Oh, so glad you can make it, she said, a slight tremor in her voice, on, on short notice. We wanted to see the inside of the house, Denny said. But again, are you okay? Me? Oh, yes, I was... She said, then looked around her as if trying to remember how to speak, or to find some excuse. I was just making a phone call. A phone call, Denny said? On your knees? Yep, I came in here for some privacy. I don't know, I just must have zoned out. Kate said, you didn't hear us come in? Meeting her gaze, Kate saw the agent's eyes were returning to normal. The expression on her face had also begun to change, to soften. Her smile lifted, cheeks dimpled. Of course I did, come on, she said, brushing past them. Have you had a chance to look around yet? Danny and Kate shared a look, but before either could respond, Connie smartly was already in the hallway saying, Let me show you around. From the back seat of the Jeep, Joan said, Do I have to be the one to bring up what happened back there? Kate and Denny told his mother about the interaction in the closet, while Connie had run outside to get some paperwork from her SUV. It was weird, Mom, Kate said. Nah, Denny said. She was just probably praying for a big commission. In the walk-in closet, Kate asked. Prayer is a serious thing, babe, Denny said. She wanted her privacy. But why there? Joan asked. Right then, when we were coming over. Denny considered this before saying, Maybe we caught her playing with herself. Denny! Joan shouted. What? He said, giggling. Selling houses has got to be stressful. She's got to make that money. Sometimes you just need to get the poison out of your system before a big event. Joan stuck her fingers in her ears and was singing, La 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 la. Hell, I did the same thing, Denny said, right before my first date with you. No, you didn't, Kate said. Looking over, he could just make out the shape of her eyes through her sunglasses. He said, Scout's honor. Well, it didn't work, obviously. You were a nervous wreck the whole time. No, I wasn't. Suave. Mr. Cool. Babbling, sweating, twitchy. Kate said, laughing. It was cute. Nervous, sure, Denny said. But at least I wasn't poking you in the stomach when we kissed goodnight. This made Kate laugh out loud, and she reached over and squeezed her husband's thigh. From the back seat, Joan said, Are you done yet? Mom, I'm never done. That's why Kate loves me so much. Quit it, Joan said. Then after a moment, added, Seriously, guys, that whole thing didn't bother you at all? Denny waited for Kate to answer this time, and when she didn't, he said, Who cares? 
Let's just hope she gets us this house for a good price. Whether she worked any magic or not, Connie called Kate's phone later that evening with the news that their offer, 10000 less than the already low asking price, had been accepted. No terms, no renegotiation. If the inspections cleared and they made it through the short escrow period, the house was theirs. They moved in a month later. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Ghost Modernist. This is a re-recorded version of the second chapter of The House Unsettling. When I recorded that first season, I knew nothing about sound quality or studio setup. And I really don't, still. But I think it sounds a little bit better, so I wanted to try this recording again. If you're enjoying the show, please follow or on whatever platform you're using, and rate and review The Ghost Modernist on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen on that platform, it really does help get this to more listeners. The theme song was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?